Thank you, Nats. Thank you, Lutz. Lovely to have you back. I never thought I'd see the day when you were nervous. It's awesome to have seen that finally, that he's actually a normal flesh and blood human being like the rest of us. Um, Nats has just been talking about giving. Uh, and as pastors, we are just feeling so overwhelmed and wanting to celebrate the fact that our church is continuing to give and give amazingly in these times, which is allowing us to do all the wonderful stuff that we have the privilege of being able to do. Uh, so thank you and well done for the faith that you have chosen uh, to work out of and work off of. Um, welcome, welcome to the part three of this Hope Conversation. It's been a great week in Durban, hasn't it? Uh, feel free to let us know in the comment section what you've loved most about this week. There's been uh, a strawberry moon, the hippies that live near me apparently are very fired up about that. I'm not sure if that's just a Coldplay song or if that's something important for some reason. Um, but maybe you've loved that or the beautiful weather. Um, maybe you've been really inspired on Tuesday with Blackout Tuesday and all the painful but really important, really amazing stuff um, that's gone on. Um, maybe you've been back to work. I think many of, people, uh, many of the people who are watching have worked this week for the first time in a more vaguely normal way than you used to. I hope that was okay for you. As I said, whatever state you're in, whatever reason you've ended up joining us in this chat this morning about hope, we're just so glad you're here. You are so welcome. And hope is the most precious of commodities right now, isn't it? So it's good to be a little forensic about actually understanding how it works, where it comes from, and interestingly, how it can grow. That's what we're going to discover this morning, that hope can actually grow. Now, Durbanites are good at hoping. We do a lot of hoping. We're hoping to make a lot of events a lot of the time, right? You're welcome in the comments section to just name and shame this guy. But it's that like, hey, are you going to make it to Candice's Briar? Yeah, I hope so. Uh, are you going to get to Thingamy's uh, Bulls this weekend? Yeah, I'm, I'm really going to try, you know. Uh, and the, the great philosopher Yoda told us that there is no try. There is to do or not do. But to try is bogus, right? And that is if you're honest, what gets you so frustrated about that Durbanite thing of saying, I'll try, I hope I get there. Now, I've got a mate who likes me so little, he stopped even bothering to come up with an excuse for why he can't come. He just doesn't turn up. We, we've started counting the number of WhatsApps that turn blue, but he never replies to the event. You know, it's, it's frustrating when you say you're going to hope to do something, where in fact we know you've got full control. You can choose whether to be there or not be there, which is why it doesn't make sense to say you're going to hope to be there. The flip side of that is then also true, that if hope is going to be genuine, if it's really legitimate to talk about hoping, then you have to admit that that only makes sense if you don't have control or certainty. It's been a big revelation for me. Hope is beautiful. The um, motivational posters make hope seem like something glorious, and it is. But it is not comfortable. If you're in a situation where you need to hope, by definition, that means you're in a situation that you can't control and that you don't have certainty in. If you did have control and certainty, you wouldn't need to hope. So let's be clear. If we're talking about hope, we're talking about something uncomfortable. It's like that excruciating kind of falling in love moment. Do you remember that? That she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, as if the daisy knows more than you. It probably does, actually, because you're in that like freak out, exquisite, excruciating moment of not sure, are those vibes for real, are they not? And you're analyzing everything with your friends and checking out, you know, who else she likes on Facebook. And you're asking Siri for advice and you're getting a second opinion from Alexa. And while management's having this debate about whether or not to follow your heart, your wretched hormones have just decided to pull the trigger anyway and say, we're doing it, you know. Um, it is an awful and yet amazing experience to be falling in love because you just don't know. And if you've not had that experience, I think you may have missed uh, a very painful and exhausting bullet. But hope is a little bit like that, right? Hope's that kind of hard in your mouth, uncertainty. Hope is not 
neat and tidy and comfy and cozy. If you're expecting hope to feel like that, if you're expecting hope to feel certain and cozy, you're not actually hoping to experience hope. What you're looking to experience is another thing. It's called blissful ignorance. And that lives back somewhere in like January 2020. It doesn't live here anymore. You're not going to get that again. Hope is problematic. Hope is like, it's like asking the future out on a date and hoping that she's going to be gentle with you. That's what hope is like. And as problematic and difficult and exposed and vulnerable as it feels, it is also essential, isn't it? The conversation up till now over the last two weeks has shown us that hope is what gets us going. Hope, when you allow God to get hold of it, actually turns into faith, which is the substance of things hoped for. It's what allows you to not just get up in the morning, but actually get what's in heaven and bring it to earth. We absolutely need hope. And it's not just, please hear this, it's not just that you need hope. We all need you to have hope. I know this is an overused expression, but your emotions and my emotions have never been more contagious than they are right now. It's one thoughtless comment from a trusted friend about a secondhand story about the police and some dumb thing they did, and your hope is in the toilet, right? And it's one hope-filled conversation with someone who's celebrating the resilience and generosity and humor of South Africans, and suddenly your hope is rising again. What we have to say is more contagious than ever. So it's not just that you need hope. It's that we need you to have hope. In fact, we need to be more responsible than we've ever been with the things we say. And so the conversation this morning is about the fact that hope can actually grow. See, this is a big idea. Hope's not binary. It's not that you either do or don't have hope. It's a bit like joy in that way. Marketers want you to believe you either do or don't have joy. No, 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 it can grow. It's scalable. Hope can be scaled up. You can do things to nurture it and to fan it into flame and to cause it to grow. And similarly, you can do things to squash it and crush it and cause it to dwindle. You can grow your hope. And so we're going to go to some scripture that's going to show us exactly how to grow it. Are you ready? It's from Paul in Romans. And um, he says this, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So our hope starts in who he is and just how glorious he is. And then Paul says something quite amazing. He says, it's not only that, but also we glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is saying that suffering via an interesting causal chain of events can lead to more hope, not less. Suffering can grow your hope. That's strange. Suffering normally leads to us blaming and complaining. That's the standard response to suffering. But Paul's saying there's some choices you can make. There's some stuff you can do deliberately that can Use suffering against itself. You can turn it on its head. You can do the dirty on it and actually turn the suffering into more hope, not less. And he's pretty practical about how you do that. You see the suffering as an opportunity to persevere. Persevering is just stubbornly choosing to do the same thing despite opposition. And so suffering gives you an opportunity to do that, to make those choices repeatedly. And persevering, if you do it for long enough, turns into character. Character is just what's left over when you've made the same choice enough times that it's no longer something you choose to do, it's just something you are, okay? So suffering gives you this opportunity to go, I'm gonna make the same choice stubbornly, deliberately, to the point where it's no longer something I choose, it's just something I am. And once that character is embedded, hope is possible. In fact, you have more hope at the end of that process than you did at the beginning. That's really practical. I don't know about you, but I'm still wondering 
It's a bit vague. I want a little bit more information. What choices do I need to keep on making? What kind of character do I need to keep on developing? Now, people who mistakenly think that Christianity is just about being very good read that passage and think that character just means high moral excellence, right? I would suggest that Christianity is the opposite of that. Christianity is the fact that all the attempts to try and be good haven't worked. But be that as it may, what is this character that needs to be formed? Is it just my stubbornly choosing to develop some moral excellence in myself? If that's what it is, if that's what Paul is saying produces hope, that sounds like a pretty lonely, self-reliant journey. And the truth is, I don't even know if that makes sense. People who are very, very good don't automatically have more hope when they suffer. No, let's stop guessing. Let's ask Paul to actually make this clear, because he tells us in the context just before and after. So we're going to go two verses up. This is how Paul starts how he introduces this idea that you can grow your hope. He says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is just the most beautiful idea on earth, right? That we have been given a blank slate, that we have been exonerated. And not only that, but we've then ended up in friendship with God, that we were at one stage enemies of God. You may not have known this. You might have hoped that in your rebellion against him, he either didn't exist or didn't care. That's just not the truth that a holy God can have no other response to our sin and rebellion but absolute anger. And yet, thank heaven, he's more patient when he's angry than we are. And so he sends his son, and through an amazing choice that he made and nothing that we can deserve, we end up in friendship with God. Friendship's incredible with God. If God is the most terrifying enemy you can have, he is the best possible friend you can have. And so Paul's saying, well, your hope starts in the fact that through no work of your own, through nothing that you could have deserved, purely because of what Jesus did, you can stop being God's enemy and start being his friend. If that doesn't cause hope to rise, nothing will. And then he goes on to say, through whom, this Jesus, this amazing thing that now I'm friends with God, we have gained access by faith into his grace, which is just unmerited favor. So not only am I no longer his enemy and no longer a criminal, I've been exonerated, I'm now called his friend, and I get to stand in grace, unmerited favor, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. A few chapters later in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 30 of Romans, Paul's going to say that those he's justified, he's also glorified. My hope is in the fact that I've been exonerated. My hope is also in the fact that I'm not God's friend. My hope is also in the fact that his intentions towards me are to give me unmerited favor and to move me from glory to glory. The best is yet to come. That is what my hope can be built on, that he is good and his intentions towards me are good. That's the summary of those first few lines. So then we get to the bit we know already, right? That the suffering, when it comes along, gives us an opportunity to persevere in this way of life and understanding just how good he is and how good he's been to me and how good his intentions are towards me. So perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's really important to notice that this invitation into growing in hope finishes with an invitation into deeper relationship. God is saying, I want to connect with your heart. I've shown you that I'm good. I've shown you that I'm generous. I've shown you I want to be your friend. I've shown you that I want to pour out unmerited favor on you, grace. I've shown you that I want to move you from glory to glory. And then he finishes by saying, and I just want to be with you. I've poured out my spirit into your heart. I've offered you love. God has asked us out in just the same vulnerable way that we experience in human relationships. He says, I want to be with you. So friends, when you top and tail this idea of perseverance with this amazing window into the character of God and into the relationship he wants to have with us, I'm left only able to make one conclusion, 
the thing that I need to persevere in, the thing that I need to choose so often that it turns into character, the thing that I need to make a way of life for myself if I'm to see hope grow, is to deliberately and stubbornly take what I know about the character of God and cause that to be the lens through which I look at my life. It's as simple as that. You always have choices about the lens you use to look at your world through. And what Paul is saying is, if you can persevere, if you can get so stubborn, if you can make a way of life of taking the lens of the goodness and kindness and amazing intentions of God and his desire to have a relationship with you, and if you can pick that up and use that to be the lens through which you look at life, if you can make that your character, your way of life, hope will grow. The worst thing that Satan could do is cause you to suffer. Because when you do, you have an opportunity to just use that lens even more and build that muscle memory even more and get better at using that lens. And it allows you to see what's really going on. Because you know, just as I do, that the lenses you choose to use in relationships can make or break your ability to see the real world. You know, there's no such thing as 2020 vision. We sometimes like to think that our skepticism is causing us to see the world more clearly. Don't be fooled. In my relationship with my wife, if I'm skeptical of her, if I'm consistently wondering, does this behavior mean that she's actually evil or actually selfish? You know how that ends, right? If I use the, the skeptical lens when trying to understand her behavior, I wreck my relationship. I don't see the world more clearly. I'm simply seeing the world through the lens of my insecurities and fears. You have a choice to either look at the world through the lens of your insecurities and fears or through the lens of the goodness and kindness and amazing character of God. And if you can persevere, if you can choose to just fix those goggles on and never take them off, you will see the world more clearly, you'll see God more clearly, and hope will grow. Cool, eh? So I've invited some friends of mine to come and have a chat with me. Paul and Ray Reardon are from Kloof. Uh, come join me, guys. And um, they, they're quite a classic um, set of people. They've had some unbelievable experiences in their lives, uh, which they're going to tell you about in a moment. And, um, and they have, despite great suffering, proven this verse true. They've lived it out. You guys have been like the, um, the experiment upon which this has been tested. Uh, so the story starts... Paul's about 23, he gets uh, chicken pox and doesn't heal properly from that and um, ends up, because he's a bit of an idiot, trying to train too hard and tearing the aortic valve in his heart. That eventually leads through medicine and stuff to a valve replacement in 2010. Um, and then the year after that, bro, in 2011, something happens and you give your life to Jesus in a big way. Uh, tell us what went on there. What's, what's your story? Well, um, we were at an event and I collapsed. Woke up in hospital, uh, realized I'd had another valve replacement. I was pretty bummed because it had only been 11 months since the last one. Um, also realizing that I had destroyed 40% of my heart. And uh, my first valve replacement, I tried to navigate my pain and disappointment with not feeling the best uh, with alcohol and just trying to handle the depression. And that was the journey. And, it was, and, I, just, and I got to a place where I just went, God... If you're really real, let's figure out. Let, let me see. I want to I get to know you. I want to see if you are who you, they say you are. That's where it started. Okay. So then, Ray, what happens from there through to 2015? So this part of our journey was actually really cool. Um, we were flourishing um, as, a, as a, a married couple again, and um, we'd, we'd stepped out of a season of it being really, really messy. Um, with, with Paul drinking the way he was, I just didn't actually ha have the husband that I used to have. And so 
uh, with Paul moving in, in a relationship with God and me on my own faith journey, it was incredible to see how kind God was in what he was doing in our marriage and how he was putting this beautiful thing back together. So we were in a really good space. And with that, Paul was training a lot, um, and he'd started swimming again. And so he was off on his normal um, training session, off to Virgin Active Swimming Pool. And I get a phone call not so long after that saying, you better hurry, you better get here quickly. Um, There's something wrong with your husband. He's outside of the pool, and um, it looks like he's had a heart attack. So of course, (laughs) the first thing you do is rush off to um, to the, the gym. Um, and it was, it was a really surreal thing to see because all of a sudden uh, I run in there and I'm seeing people working on Paul and he's on the side of the swimming pool and he's non-responsive and um, his heart had stopped. And for 45 minutes you have a team of emergency um, services working on your husband and he's not, he's not c- coming around. And it is one of the most scary things that you've ever had to deal with, or that I've ever had to deal with. I remember you phoning me that day. It's still one of the scariest days I can remember. Um, bro, you wake up in a hospital bed after this has gone on. Um, what's going on in your head? Wow. Um, I was confused, and then I was uh, made aware of everything. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah, I just I lay there and kept on asking the same questions, which was quite painful to my family. And then um, I was also made aware that um, I was going to need a pacemaker so the event didn't happen again, which was nice of them. And um, yeah, it was, but I had a piece that I hadn't had in any other visit to the hospital. I had a piece and God had given us dreams and I was hanging on to that. Eh? And the piece I had was, yeah, I was just amped to get out of hospital. Let's try again. <laughs> okay. So then Ray, what happens next? What's the next chapter of the journey? So from there, um, like Paul said, uh, it was 40% of his heart was damaged. So although he had his pacemaker, he was slowly getting more and more ill. And it got to the point where the doctors were saying, look, his health has deteriorated to such an extent now that he's going to have to go onto the heart transplant list. And that's a big blow um, when you suddenly realize that that's how ill your human is. So from 2017 to this point in time when we got our heart, our miracle, in 2018, it was really just a time of like digging deep into what God had for us and digging into the promises that he had given us. And just being, knowing that he was going to come through for us. Mm-hmm. And at the end of 2018, we got our heart. It was the most surreal thing to see the thing that you've been praying for most earnestly actually come to fruition. It was like... God, you love us. I mean, this is just, this is amazing. Um, And our miracle happened, and the transplant happened, and everything was just going so well. And you think to yourself, our miracle's happened. What more could go wrong now, really? Um, Like, life is going to be good. Life is going to be amazing now. Not so much for the Redlands. It's it's been a difficult journey. Um, We... So what happens when you have a pacemaker is um, you get a, sorry, what happens when you have a transplant is you get a temporary pacemaker put in. And this is really just as a, an insurance policy. If something goes wrong, then at least um, they've got this to, to fall back on. And when um, we were going through the first couple of days of transplant, Paul was the model patient. Um, they just, the nurses were so amped to tell me what he had done that day, the boxes that he had ticked, and everything that he had gone through. We were out of that hospital in way, a way um, shorter time than everyone had anticipated. 
until that night. The second time in my husband's life, his heart stopped. You see, what happened was the pacemaker's lead, uh, the, uh, the temporary pacemaker's lead was dislodged. And um, yeah, everything just went um, AWOL, really. Um, and his heart didn't start again on its own. And so with, they then put the errant lead back and they got everything going again, but um, obviously, because he's here. <laughs> but um, with that, we had the really devastating news that we would have to have a permanent pacemaker put in along with our new heart. I know, bro, that that experience has actually cast a shadow almost over the rest of your life since then. It was the most devastating experience. Tell us how you felt. Tell us why that was such a devastating blow. So uh, once they uh, put me back in the bed, because I was sitting on a chair, and uh, the, the lead, errant lead was restored, I just sat there and I was like, God, I, I don't understand, man. I, I like every prophetic word, everything I'd ever heard from God, I was questioning. There was not a thing, and I'm the kind of guy that asked a lot of questions. And... Um, Oh, man, I was broken. I have never been that broken. I probably cried myself to sleep because the closeness of God, although he was still there, I was just, I was finished. I was broken. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do. Um, so, yeah, that's... Yeah. You had been so certain, and then suddenly all of that had been rocked, and I know how much that made you doubt God. How did you guys get through that, Ray? You tell me, what was the next step? Yeah, so... With the journey that we've been on, we have, we've learned that control is actually a complete illusion. The control that you think of, that you have over your health, over your finances, over your relationship. It's, you don't, it's, uh, Paul always says it's a false sense of responsibility. And so when you realize that you actually don't have the control over that, we didn't have the control over when Paul was going to get his new heart. We didn't have the control over what his health would look like um, post-transplant. So once I'd realized that actually this is not my stuff to carry um, and give it over to God, all I could do was put my hope in him. All we could do was put our trust in him and hang on to the promises that he had given us. Because really, at the end of the day, that's, all, that's the only control we have of who we're putting our, our faith and our hope in. And when I got to that point, there was such a weight that had been lifted off my shoulders. I was now living in freedom, the freedom that God promises that you can have because he has the control. Sure. Paula, how did you get through that moment? As Ray says, it was, yeah, it, like the worst moments are actually sometimes a gift. And um, I was trusting God for a, a healing in my body. And uh, I went from trusting him for a healing in my body to um, becoming a friend of God and trusting in the character of who he is. And with God, he will rock your world. Um, I was the biggest skeptic, the biggest whatever. I, I, I seriously did not believe that he was this real. And we've been through quite a bit. Um, and uh, I wouldn't change. There's not one thing I would change. I would, go, I would do heart failure. I'd do heart transplant. I'd do everything that I've done just to get here with God. Because my hope is in who he is and in the character of who he is. So you're actually saying that whether he does or doesn't heal your body is so much less relevant than getting to be his friend. That that's the most important thing, his personality, his, the relationship with him. I, I wish, Paulie, I wish I could explain it. It is, 
like I still have bad days. We're all humans and, 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 and we have bad days and you go, oh, I don't feel like I'm a Christian or I don't feel like this. But he is so real and he loves you and he talks to you where you need to be spoken to. And sometimes he'll use the worst thing in your life and it'll become the best moment in your life. So yeah, just trust him. Trust in who he is as opposed to what he can give you. Just trust in who he is. These people are, um, I mean, they're my friends and it's amazing to, to watch how they are the proof that suffering doesn't have to do what it says on the label. You can actually end up with more hope, not less, as a result. I've asked Sia, um, who works with kids, uh, to give us a little perspective on how hope works with them, because you either have to be a heart transplant patient by the sound of it, or to be a kid, to be a real expert at hope. They certainly are. So we're going to hear from Sia for a moment. Thanks, Paul. When I hear Paul's thoughts, and I stop to think of this idea of hope, I'm kind of led to this question. I wonder if it was easier for us to hope when we were kids. And if so, why? So I work with kids in our kids' church spaces and I've kind of seen this play out. Kids don't really need anyone's permission to hope. They aren't taught it, they're just really good at hoping. I wonder if it has something to do with how they are in relationships. If you stop to observe a child for a while, you see that children are experts at figure, figuring out who to trust. And when they know that, they put their whole hearts in that person's hands. They view their circumstances and people's behavior through the lens of, I can trust what's in your heart. For example, when a kid meets me for the first time in kids' church, um, they're often quite shy and untrusting of me. And rightfully so, I'm a stranger. They don't know my heart, and by extension, they don't know my intentions. But as they continue to come to kids' church and we engage and we interact with one another, uh, I begin to earn their trust. So the thing about kids, is that they view a person through the content of their character, not necessarily their track record, the tangible stuff that uh, we can get them, what we do, or what we say. Those are really just clues. When a kid knows your character, they begin to uh, interpret your behavior through the lens of your character. Once a kid trusts you, they're okay with what you do, even if uh, they don't like it. Children begin to view our yeses and our noes, and even our mistakes through the lens of they can trust our character. Now, as Paul has shown us in Romans 5, true hope is grown when we build our life using the lens of God's character to understand our circumstances and not really um, using our circumstances to judge God's character. When we know God's heart and we trust that his intentions towards us are good, we can go through suffering and come out of it with even more hope. As we journey uh, through life and we meet God, the tragic point and uh, the painful point is that we kind of get to a point where we view our relationship with God in the same way that we view our relationship with everything and everyone else. We become quite skeptical to put our hope in Him because we can't really see what's in God's heart. We're constantly judging His behavior, his responses, or the lack thereof, as an indication of what's in his heart. What can happen is in those moments is that we begin to not see God clearly. And this leads to us not really seeing our circumstances clearly. This begins a vicious cycle of us uh, having our hope constantly deferred. And here's what I mean by that. When we don't see God clearly, or we don't know his heart, we uh, then miss what he could be doing in a specific circumstance. 
and because we missed what he could have been doing, it leads to us being disappointed. So we see God less, and we see less of what he might be doing in a specific circumstance. But it leads to us being disappointed a whole lot more. And that also then in turn leads to us trusting God a whole lot less. It's a vicious cycle to get caught in. Now, I want to speak about the opposite of that, of what it could look like with God using a human example. Because I still believe that we can flex this muscle of being able to view people through the content of their character. We can still utilize that superpower that we had when we were kids. Take my relationship with Paul, for example. So, so for those that don't know, Paul is my boss, um, but he's also my friend. And over the past three years, we've built a relationship. And I can confidently say that I can trust what's in Paul's heart. Whether he tells me that what I don't want to hear or he doesn't tell me what I want to hear. I can trust that Paul's intentions towards me are good. I view our relationship through the lens of uh, his commitment to both me and the good of the church. Now, let's be honest. We will never really know someone 100% perfectly. But we need to choose to view people through the content of their character and not through the ever-changing lens of their behavior or our own circumstances. We can, and dare I say, we must choose to see God this way. Because you see, hope can grow when we choose to view our circumstances through the lens of, I know what's in God's heart. I can trust his intentions. So even though I'm going through a tough circumstance, what might God be doing for my good? I really kind of want to bring it into land on this point. If we want to be a people that live this way, that see God this way, that we really need to be intentional about leaning in to who he is. Not just relying on the external stuff, the, the stuff that we hear from other people, um, the secondhand revelations, but really looking into his eyes, seeing his heart, and trusting his intentions towards us, and believing that they are good. When we do this continuously, we begin to know God and not just know about him. And when we really know God, we can always know that the best is still yet to come. This is a courageous way to live, and it takes a lot of vulnerability. But if I have any currency with you at all, then please trust me when I say that God is ready to meet you where you are. His arms are open wide, ready to pull you in close, because you know what? God isn't judging you based on your behavior. He's looking into your heart through the lens of the sacrifice of Jesus, and he loves what he sees. Have you ha ever had the experience of being mistrusted? Have you ever felt that when someone questions your motives and as a result misunderstands what you were up to? Or the converse of that, I have a little son, and there are times when even when I've said no to him, even when I've been the cause of discomfort and pain in his life, I still hear this little person call me dad, and I sometimes wonder, like, who is he talking about with so much trust? Me. He trusts me that much. Have you ever felt trusted? Where people are looking at who you are, not recalculating the whole time whether or not they can trust you based on their interpretation of your behavior. See, your Father in heaven, just like me, feels his heart swell when his kids go, Dad, I just trust who you are. I trust what's in your heart. I've worked out that your intentions towards me are good. And so I'm going to make that the starting point 
as opposed to starting with my circumstances and my insecurities and constantly recalculating whether or not I can trust you. It is so amazing for relationship if we can be prepared to do that. And here's the big reason why we should be trusting God based on his character, not based on his performance. It's because he treats you like that. He looks at you and he doesn't treat you based on your performance, your behavior, your past mistakes. He looks into your heart, and in fact, for most of us, that's not much better, right? If God really looks into my heart, that's not a whole lot better than my track record. But like only a parent can, he looks into your heart, and he sees what's possible. He looks at his firstborn son, and he sees that's what's possible. That's how this person can live. That's how much pleasure they can give me. That's how proud of them I can be. And because of how he feels about Jesus, he looks at you, and he looks into your heart, and even though you don't have a hope in anything of being treated this way, he goes, I'm going to treat you based on a character that you are busy forming, that I'm going to create inside you. I'm going to give you my image again. I'm going to make you like me. And I'm going to love you and treat you and behave towards you as if that were already true. Like Paul said, grace, unmerited favor, total exoneration, friend of God. You can feel that kind of thing. You can feel how much God trusts you if you'll just open your heart for a second, if you'll just believe that possibly even though you don't deserve that, he trusts you, he loves you, he cares for you, he wants to be your friend, he wants peace with you. And in reaction to that, you can trust him. You can enjoy who he is. Friends, it may be finally time for some of you to stop knowing about God and to start to know him today, to stop going off secondhand information his CV, his alleged track record, what he's done for other people. That's all helpful as a first step. But maybe, finally, it's time to stop knowing him secondhand and to actually know him, to re-engage that superpower you had as a kid for figuring out who can actually be trusted and to look at God long enough to work out he is the one who can be trusted if anyone can be trusted. He is the one whose heart is dripping, overflowing with goodness towards you. His intentions for you are absolutely rock-solid certain. He wants to bless you. He wants to transform you from glory to glory. He wants to make you like the firstborn. He wants to make you like Jesus. And he's gonna start treating you now as if you're already like him. And if I know that, if I just fix those lenses to myself, if I persevere, if I make it a way of life, if I make it my character to always remind myself what I know about God and how he feels about me, Suffering can do its worst. Hope will grow no matter what it does. And if this is grabbing your heart in any way, if scripture is causing something to rise inside you that you think you can trust God, then what's exciting for me is that I think we are gonna suddenly find ourselves part of a community of people whose hope grows, whose character turns more and more into the character of Jesus. What an incredible group of people to live among. What an amazing opportunity for our city to have people like that living inside her, for our world to have people that have hope rise even when suffering rises. I want to be part of a community like that. I think our world desperately needs a community like that. I think our enemy is terrified of a community like that. And so I would encourage you now to pray with me, to ask God, ask your trustworthy Father to create this thing inside you, this muscle memory of turning towards him. So bow your heads, and if someone's watching with you, grab their hand. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. It's going to cause us to trust God more. That's going to tell our souls what to do. Uh, And I'd love you to pray this along with me. 
And just before I start, maybe this is a moment for you that where you've never really crossed the line from knowing about God to actually knowing him. And this can be the first and most important prayer you ever pray. So as we all pray this, for those of you who are giving your lives to Jesus for the first time, your heart's beating like crazy, you think this is probably a terrible idea, you feel like you're about to ask God out on a date, well, if there's anyone who can be trusted, it's him, right? So let's pray this. Lord Jesus, we trust you. We look at your life. We look at what you show us about the content of the Father's heart. And we declare that the argument is settled. You are trustworthy. No more conversation needs to be had about this point. You are trustworthy, Dad. We trust you. I trust you. Even when it's scary, even when it's confusing, even if dreadful things are going to happen to me, I trust you more. I know how good you have always been to me. I know how desperately you are longing to be good to me for the rest of my life. And so I choose to trust you. I choose to fix those lenses and to look at the rest of my life through them. And Lord Jesus, as I trust you, I now declare I'm going to follow you. You're my king. Not only have you saved me, you've made me your friend. Not only have you made me your friend, you've destined me for glory. I'm going to follow you into whatever you have for me. All of us are going to do that. And as we follow you, I pray that I would have the incredible privilege of starting to reveal you to this world who is aching for hope. Would you stir something up inside me so foreign, so inexplainable, that people are desperate to ask me for an explanation for the hope I have? And I can say, it's because of my king. It's because of my dad. It's because of how much he loves me. It's because of how much I trust him. It's because of how certain I am that he will be good, even if I'm not certain about anything else. Amen. As you've prayed that prayer, I'm so thrilled to think about what that might do to our planet if you allow that to shape your life. Thank you so much for joining us. If, um, if you want to hang around afterwards and, uh, and connect with someone, then uh, there'll be pastors ready to chat to you for an After Church Connect. Um, if you're in a Zoom group, or perhaps finally the resistance is going to break and you think you might think about joining one, uh, mail us and join us on Tuesday night for our midweek gathering uh, and all the other things that Luther was telling you about this week. We can't wait to see you there. God bless you and fill you with hope.